If you have a Bible, open to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. By now, most of you know we're reading through the New Testament together in 2022. If you're tracking along with our reading plan, you've made it through the Gospel of Matthew. So congratulations, one book down. You are now roughly 10% through the New Testament. We make our way into the Gospel of Mark this morning. Some weeks this year, we're going to look at longer passages. This morning is the Sunday where we're going to look at a shorter passage. I just want us to look at two verses in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Now, before we read the passage, one of the things we're doing this year is we're trying to find our place. We're moving so quickly through the New Testament. We're trying to be mindful of where we're at and what's happening. And so I want to say just a few words about the Gospel of Mark and the man Traditionally, who was attributed with writing this gospel, a young man named John Mark. And so let me start with this. John Mark was not one of the 12. He was not an apostle. However, tradition connects Mark's gospel to Simon Peter. So if you keep reading through the New Testament this year, you're going to find this young man. Sometimes he's called John. Sometimes he's called John Mark. Sometimes he's just called Mark. This is the young man who went with Paul and Barnabas on the very first mission trip sent out from the church in Antioch. It's the same John Mark who about halfway through that trip quit and went home. It's the same John Mark that Paul was really, really, really put out with. And then when it came time to take the second mission trip sent out from the church in Antioch, Paul said, I'm not going with that guy, he's a quitter. Barnabas took him, and Barnabas went on a trip with John Mark, his relative. Now, sometime later, there was reconciliation between Paul and John Mark. In fact, at the end of Paul's life, when he was a Roman prisoner, he sent a letter to Timothy, and in that letter to Timothy, Paul said, please send Mark. He is useful to me. It's a beautiful story of redemption because at one point Paul thought he was useless, he was a quitter, but there was reconciliation and Paul decided at the end, this young man is useful to me and he wanted John Mark with him in his dying days. Now, tradition also connects John Mark to the apostle Peter at the end of his life when he was a prisoner in Rome. And the tradition is connected through a historian named Eusebius and one of the early church fathers named Papias. And it seems like after Mark wrote this gospel, there were people criticizing Mark. There were people saying to Mark, you're not an apostle. You shouldn't be writing a gospel. You weren't with Jesus when all of these things happened. And they were saying to Mark, you left a lot of stuff out of the story. You didn't tell the whole story. And Eusebius and Papias reference this sort of raging debate, and they say, look, he wasn't an apostle, but he was with Peter in Rome, and he got all of this information directly from Peter, who was the leader of the apostles. And Mark didn't set out to tell you every detail about Jesus' life. He's not writing a book to satisfy all of your questions and curiosities, but he's writing so that you know the good news of the gospel. So that's John Mark. Mark in this book, he begins with the ministry of John the Baptist and he includes a quotation from, and I've put this in 
quotation marks in your notes from Isaiah. And I put Isaiah in quotes because John says that he's quoting the prophet Isaiah, but what he's really doing is he's taking three Old Testament verses and he's mashing them together. One of them comes from Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah says this. Now you can find, I'll use air quotes here, Bible scholars who try to get cute and they say, oh, here's a mistake in the Bible. It's a mistake. He says it's Isaiah, but it's clearly these three passages mashed together. He doesn't even know his Old Testament. So that's fine. You can call it a mistake if you want to call it a mistake. Or you can just read the rest of the New Testament, and you can see that New Testament authors do this pretty regularly. It's pretty common among Jewish authors in the New Testament and outside of New Testament documents where they sort of mash up a few quotations and they attribute the quote to one specific person that they're quoting. This is not an uncommon way of writing. And when John Mark writes this way, he's not saying I'm only getting this from Isaiah, but he's saying, look, I'm getting this from the Old Testament and Isaiah is in the mix here. These verses he quotes, Malachi, Isaiah, Exodus, They're all related. They're all connected. In fact, some commentators see a thread all the way through the Old Testament in these references that he strung together. They all talk about salvation. They all talk about the coming of Yahweh. They all talk about the role of a messenger. And they all call God's people to get ready. And John strings these quotes together. John Mark strings these quotes together to say, All of that is fulfilled in the life and the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, one more final note. Mark briefly mentions Jesus' baptism in temptation. So in chapter 1, verse 9, 10, 11, it's the baptism of Jesus. In verse 12 and 13, it's the temptation of Jesus. He doesn't spend a lot of time there. And then he launches into a 10-chapter overview of Jesus' ministry. The final six chapters of Mark deal with the final week of Jesus' life. Our passage is Mark 1, 14 and 15. This is the introduction to Jesus' three-year ministry. Mark is setting the stage for what was it that Jesus was doing during these three years that he traveled around and he healed the sick and he cast out demons and he preached and he had disciples and he did all of these amazing things, this sets the stage for all of that. Here's the big idea of this passage and of this opening section of Mark. It's that Jesus came to bring good news to sinners. You could say he came to bring gospel to sinners. Those two words or those two phrases mean the same thing, gospel and good news. Jesus came to bring good news to sinful people. If your Bible's open, we'll read the passage. It's a short passage, and then we'll pray. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we're thankful for the good news about Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the gospel of Matthew that we have come through as a church, and now we're in the gospel of Mark. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see the truth. More than just seeing the truth, we pray that you would give us hearts to receive the truth and to respond in a way that would honor you and line up with the scriptures, what we see in Mark chapter one. 
We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with the story. This is an Old Testament story. This is a story that happened roughly 600 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. In the 6th century BC, there was a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and Babylon was a growing world power. The Assyrians had been the dominant world power for some time, but Babylon was on the rise, and Nebuchadnezzar started conquering kingdoms all around the ancient Near East. And eventually, he came to Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, and he conquered the city, and he put up sort of a puppet king who would rule in his place, and he left, but then that puppet king rebelled, and Nebuchadnezzar had to come back, and he had to conquer in his mind, the city of Jerusalem once and for all. And so he came and he destroyed the walls of the city. He flattened the temple in the city. And he hauled many of the people out of the city into exile in Babylon. Now, most of those exiles who left Jerusalem, who left Judah, are completely unknown and forgotten by history. But some of them we know. In particular, we know the names of four Jewish teenagers who were hauled out of Judah and taken into exile in Babylon. Their Jewish names are Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel. In Babylon, they received new names, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar. We remember these as a combination. We remember them, uh, the three friends on top, by their Babylonian names, and we remember Daniel by his Hebrew name. But these four guys went into exile together. And essentially, they took them to Babylon, and they put them in school. They sent them to university. And if you want to understand the point of sending these young Jewish men to university, just think about the purpose of a secular university today. You send a young person to a secular university today, there is a worldview that will be pushed upon them. There are ideas that will be pushed upon them. And that was the point in sending these young Jewish men to school in Babylon. It was to shape the way that they thought, to shape the way they thought about who God was or wasn't and what was right and what was wrong and how they should live and what was the greatest nation on the earth and all of these things. So these young men went to school. But as they went to school, they remained faithful to the Lord. It's a marvelous example of what young people today ought to aspire to, living in a pagan, godless society, a society that does not recognize the God of the Bible and remaining true to the one true God. So they go to school. And sometime after they've gone to school, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has a nightmare And he wakes up from this nightmare, and he is completely beside himself. He's out of his mind. And he calls all of his leading officials together, which includes these four Jewish teenagers. And he says to them, I had a nightmare. And I want you to tell me what it was, and I want you to tell me what it means. And all of these Babylonian-educated wise men say, great, You tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not what I asked. You tell me the dream, if you're so smart, and then you tell me what it means. And they say, well, 
Let's negotiate. You tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar says, look, if you don't tell me what I dreamed and what it means, I'm going to kill all of you. So Daniel does what a faithful follower of Yahweh should do in a situation like this. He prayed. And he asked his three buddies to pray. He got his buds together and he said, look, I need you to pray and we need to ask God, the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, we need to ask him for mercy. So they pray. And God hears their prayer. And he answers their prayer. And he tells Daniel, this is what the dream was and this is what the dream means. And Daniel, with great confidence, goes before King Nebuchadnezzar and this is what we read in Daniel chapter two. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and it became like the chaff of summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the dream. Then Daniel says, now let me tell you what it means. And he begins to talk about this image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. And he says to Nebuchadnezzar, the God of heaven has given you great authority, a great kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, you're like the head of gold on this statue. You have an amazing kingdom. God has given it to you. But it's not going to last forever because after you, there's going to be another kingdom. It's this kingdom represented uh, with the silver torso. It's going to be the Medes and the Persians. Their kingdom is not going to last forever. There's going to be another kingdom after them. It's represented here with the bronze middle. That's going to be Greece. And then there's still going to be another kingdom after them with the, the legs and the feet of iron and clay. That's going to be the Roman Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be other kingdoms after you. You're not the last king. And in the days of this fourth kingdom, something will happen that will change everything. There will be a stone, not just another layer on the statue, but a stone that comes crashing into the feet of this great statue you dreamed about and blows the entire thing to smithereens. And that stone is gonna grow. And it's gonna grow and it's gonna turn into a mountain and eventually it's going to fill all of the world. What in the world does that dream 600 years before the Gospel of Mark have to do with the Gospel of Mark? That dream was not literally fulfilled with an asteroid smashing into a statue on planet Earth. Do you understand that? There was no comet that came crashing into the Earth and blew up a statue and now you can visit this large mountain. That was not how the, the prophecy or the dream was fulfilled. It was fulfilled when a virgin named Mary gave birth to a son 
whom she named Jesus in Bethlehem, the city of David. That was the stone sent during the Roman Empire that established a new kind of kingdom that is growing and that is spreading today. And when you read the Gospel of Mark and you read Jesus say, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the Gospel. What you are to understand is that this promise, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and Daniel interpreted, this prophecy from the Old Testament has now been fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus. May not be how the Jewish people thought it would come to fruition, but it's how God in his wisdom and his providence saw fit to bring it to fruition. And Mark tells us with the words of Jesus that this is good news. It's good news that God has kept his promise and sent this king who's established a new kind of kingdom. Now, I want to say one quick word about good news, about gospel, before we jump into our text in Mark. Many of you have gone on a mission trip with our church. You've gone to Kenya, you've gone to Toronto or Alaska or Mission Arlington, some other place. And over the last several years, we have trained our people when they go on a mission trip to share the gospel. It's a very easy way to share the gospel. In fact, you hear me on Sundays often using this sort of gospel presentation. We talk about God being holy, people being sinful, Jesus being the answer, and we need to repent and believe. That's sort of a a four-step process that we set in front of our folks to say, when you share the gospel with people, these are the things that you need to talk about. Now listen, when we train our people to do that, God is holy, man is sinful, Jesus is the answer, repent and believe. We're not asking them to memorize those 12 words and just spit them back at folks as if that's all that you need to say about Jesus. What we are doing is saying, here's a framework for thinking about what the gospel message is. You've gotta talk about who God is, and you've gotta talk about sin, and you've gotta talk about Jesus, and you've gotta talk about how we respond in repentance and faith. Now in our passage, we're gonna do something similar. We're not saying this morning everything that could be said about the gospel. When this passage happened, Jesus had not died on the cross yet. And so there's not a lot specifically in this passage about the crucifixion of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. Obviously, that's an important piece of the gospel. So we're not trying to redefine the gospel. We're not trying to leave important pieces of the gospel out. We're just listening to the gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. And we're trying to understand who is this king that has come? How do we understand this kingdom that he's established and why does he say that it's all good news, that it's gospel? So the question we're asking is this, what do we need to know about the good news? Truth number one, the good news was promised by God long ago, promised by God long ago. Most of you know the name Aristotle. Aristotle was a Greek philosopher who lived in the classical age of ancient Greece, the bronze in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's interpretation. Uh, He was tutored by Plato, and in turn, he tutored somebody named Alexander the Great. So he's 
right in between two pivotal figures in ancient history. When people talk about Aristotle, they call him a polymath. Polymath, that's your vocabulary word for the day. And here's Landon's poor man definition of polymath. You're really smart. Not just in one thing, but in a lot of things. So people look back on Aristotle and they say, well, he's the father of logic. He's the father of biology, political science, natural law, rhetoric, psychology, meteorology, and about a dozen other things. He's the father of all of these disciplines. In other words, they're saying he's a really smart guy. Let me share you my favorite quote from this really smart guy. A promise made must be a promise kept. A promise made must be a promise kept. Can you imagine how life in the United States would change if we lived by that idea? Can you imagine how our politics would be different? It's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? Can you imagine how our families would be different? Imagine how our educational system would be different? Can you imagine how employees and employers and their relationships would be different? Can you imagine how our pastors and church members and churches would be different? Essentially what he's talking about here, you know, is the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Don't be a liar and keep your word. Look, you know and I know that as human beings, we're really not very good at this, are we? We're really bad at this. As human beings, we have this inward bent of our hearts that we don't want to say what is true. And when we make a promise, we don't want to keep it. We lie. In that sense, we are not like God who never, never lies. He always keeps his word. And for millennia, he had been promising his people that he would send a savior. That's the story of the Old Testament. It's God making promises to his people. And many of those promises he kept within the storyline of the Old Testament. But many of those promises point towards Jesus. The very first one you find is Genesis chapter 3. Right there in the garden. God says to Adam and even to the serpent, I am going to send the offspring of the woman and he is going to come. His heel will be bruised, but he will crush the serpent's head. He will save you from this curse that you're under. And those promises continue through every book of the Old Testament right up to the very last book of the Old Testament, the very last chapters of the book of Malachi, chapter three and four. You find God still promising his people, I'm gonna send somebody. I'm gonna send somebody. They're gonna change everything. They're gonna save you. They're gonna deliver you. They're gonna bring life. They're gonna bring you out from underneath this curse. All of these promises build up all the way through the Old Testament and then you open the gospel of Mark and Mark says, hey, there's a guy named John the Baptist who came. The Old Testament talked about him. And do you know what his job was? His job was to be the very last prophet that God sent. The very last one who would say to God's people, you better get ready right now because the king is coming. I know God has been saying this all the way back 
in Malachi's day and all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He's been promising you this for a long time, but he is about to come and you had better get ready. And he comes. Look at Mark chapter one, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. God has been making this promise for thousands of years and now the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. Paul says it this way in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God had promised to do this. And unlike us, God always keeps his promises. That's what Mark is saying to you when he says the time is fulfilled. God has kept his promise. He said he would send somebody, and now he's sent them. Secondly, what do we learn about the good news? The good news involves a king and his kingdom. A king and his kingdom. If you've come through the Gospel of Matthew, you have read a phrase over and over in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. As you move into Mark and Luke, you'll read a phrase, the kingdom of God. Matthew prefers to say kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke say the kingdom of God. Throughout church history, there has been incredible confusion about what God's kingdom is. When the Roman emperor Constantine declared that Christianity was the religion of the empire, some people thought that was the kingdom of God. As the Roman Catholic Church grew in power over the centuries, some people thought this is the kingdom of God. Other people have come along and tried to establish some sort of earthly theocratic kingdom and said, no, this is the kingdom of God. But I think the, the most helpful scholar on this question of the kingdom of God is a man named George Eldon Ladd who says this, the kingdom of God is his kingship, it's his rule, it's his authority. That's what the kingdom of God is. It is the rule and the reign and the sovereignty of God in the lives of his people. It's not like Rome. It's not like Greece. It's not like Persia or Media. It's not like Babylon. It's not like Assyria. It's not like Egypt. It's not like any of these earthly kingdoms. You remember the dream Nebuchadnezzar had? All of those kingdoms are represented in the statue. But it's not like there's just one more layer added to the statue, one more kingdom like the others. There's a stone, and it's not cut by human hands. It's otherworldly, and it smashes into those kingdoms, and it blows them to smithereens, and it begins to grow, and it begins to spread, and it begins to fill the earth. Today, God's kingdom is present where his people acknowledge his sovereignty. It exists right alongside all sorts of other earthly kingdoms. The quote-unquote People's Republic of China the United States of America, Kenya, Canada, everywhere in between. There's all of these nations, all of these kingdoms, and right alongside all of them and right in the middle of all of them, there's the kingdom of God. It's the lives of his people who recognize his rule and his reign and his authority. Now, in the end, that kingdom will be fully realized on the earth. And Jesus Christ will sit on a throne and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But today, God's kingdom exists side by side with all of these earthly kingdoms. And Mark is telling us that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is now at hand. 
Here's an important thing you've got to understand about God's kingdom. You need to know this as you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The kingdom of God is already and not yet. Already and not yet. That's classic preacher talk where you talk out of both sides of your mouth. It's here and it's not yet here. You can experience it today, but you're still going to have to wait for all of it. It's already and it's not yet. And you know what's a funny thing is Jesus goes on to teach. Pay attention to his parables as you read through Mark. In some of Jesus' parables, he emphasizes the fact that the kingdom is already here, that it has come. He says, you know what? God's kingdom is like leaven in a batch of dough. And right now, it is spreading all the way through that dough. It's here. And then other times, Jesus says, you know what? The kingdom of God is like a wedding feast in the future. It's not here yet. You're waiting for it. You're looking for it. You're hoping for it. You're anticipating that it's going to come. It's already, and it's not yet. You've made it through Matthew you're reading Mark, you're going to read Luke, you're gonna to come to John. John's not gonna say much about the kingdom of God. I think you find the phrase kingdom of God once in John's gospel, but do you know what phrase you find a lot in John's gospel? Eternal life. It's the same idea. It's already here, and it's not yet here. It's already, and it's not yet. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life today. And when I say that, I don't mean that you can go to heaven when you die. I mean you can have that life today. I'm not talking to you like a car salesman in the year 2020 who says to you, what kind of car do you want? Pick your make, pick your model, Pick the color, pick the trim package. I'll see you in eight months and I'm gonna have a car that looks nothing like the one you ordered. You're just gonna take what you can get because nobody has any cars right now. You don't get it today. You're gonna have to wait. That's not how it works with eternal life. You don't just have to wait for it until you get to heaven. You can walk off the lot, so to speak, with eternal life today. And even as you walk off the lot with it, here's part of the mystery of the kingdom of God and eternal life, you still wait for it. You have it, but you don't yet fully have it. It's already, and it's not yet. It exists where God's people recognize his reign and his rule and his authority. Thirdly, What do we need to know about the good news? The good news requires a response from sinners. I told you there was confusion about what is the kingdom of God. Is it an earthly kingdom? Is it an empire? Is it a president? What is it? Is it a specific denomination? There's all this confusion about what is God's kingdom. There is incredible confusion about how we respond to the good news. Incredible confusion. A lot of people today, when it comes to responding to the good news, say what you need to do is some religious, ritualistic thing. That's how you respond to the good news. You 
get baptized, you take the Lord's Supper, you go to confession, uh, you perform some sort of penance, you make a pilgrimage, you do some religious thing. That's how you respond to the good news. In the Bible Belt, what you hear most of the time is people saying the way you respond to the good news is you invite Jesus into your heart. I bet you've heard people say that a thousand times. You've got to invite Jesus into your heart. It's a confusing concept. It's not really a biblical concept. It's not the words used by Jesus or the apostles to talk about how we respond to Jesus. What a lot of people will tell you today is the way you respond to the good news is you just try to be the best version of you. You just try to be nice. You just try to be a good person. The question is, when Jesus talks about our response to the good news, how does Jesus want us to respond to the good news? And the answer is very simple, very unpopular, but very simple. Repent and believe. So we'll talk about those in turn briefly. Let's talk about repentance. Repentance, the Greek word is metanoia, involves a change of mind that results in a change of life. This is a Bible word. If you want to be a Bible person, you've got to use Bible words. John the Baptist told people to repent. Jesus told people to repent. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he preached the very first Christian sermon, said, repent. The apostle Paul told people to repent. The apostle John, who we know is the apostle of love, said you'd better repent and it better be real. Repentance is a change of mind. That's what the Greek word literally means, meta change, noia mind, a change of mind that results in a change of life. Today, people hear that and they think it's bad news. They hear bad news. In fact, there are places in the world today where it is illegal to tell people to repent. I'm not talking about backward, primitive nations. I'm not talking about Muslim nations. I'm talking about Western, civilized, developed nations. Where if you say to somebody that they are guilty of this sin or that sin and that they need to repent, you can be charged of a crime and sent to prison. People hear that and they say, that's bad, bad news. People don't want to be told that they need to change their mind about sin and that their life needs to change. People want to be affirmed. People want you to say you're good the way that you are. You just need to be the best version of you. So I don't know how this idea of repentance lands on you. I know how it lands on a secular society. A secular society, a secular culture says that's bad news. You're not allowed to say that. You cannot tell people that they're sinners. You cannot tell them to repent. You cannot tell them that they must turn from who they feel like they are. Jesus says... Repent. Repent. You've got to change your mind about sin. You've got to change your mind about God's judgment towards sin. And your life has to change as a result. That's part of the good news. You can hear it as bad news. 
but I pray this morning you hear it as good news. That there is a God in heaven who loves you enough to tell you this will kill you. This leads to death. And you got to change your mind and turn around and go in the other direction. There's a God in heaven who loves you enough to send his son to die for you. To offer his life as a sacrifice for your sins. And who says, I have good news. I have something good to tell you. It's about a king. And he has a kingdom. And he offers life. And the first thing that you've got to do to receive it and to to experience it is to repent. It's to change your mind. Secondly, is to believe. Believing, or you can say having faith. Faith and belief are not different things in the biblical sense. It's the same root word, pistuo, to believe. involves trusting God's promise of salvation. You see the opposite of this in secular society that says, we will not believe that. We will not listen to that. We will not accept that. We will not submit to that. We want nothing to do with that. The person who believes says, I'm gonna take God at his word. You know what, he has a pretty good track record of keeping his word. He always keeps his promises, always. You can trust him. You can believe him. When he talks about his holy character, you can believe him. When he talks about the horror of our sin, you can believe him. When he tells you that Jesus Christ came to this earth to offer himself as a sacrifice for sinners, you can believe him. When he tells you that you need to repent of your sin, you can believe him. And when he says that if you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the king, you will enter his kingdom today and you will live in it forever, you can believe him.